Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Thea is still on that interminable holiday, so I'm joined again this week by TLS Arts Editor, token northerner and one-time member of indie rock band called The Impossibles, Lucy Dallas. Hello. Is that true? <laughs> it is true. It was a very long time ago, but thank you for the reminder. No, I've seen a video on YouTube of the band The Impossibles. Nobody has to watch that. So do, if, you, if you put into YouTube search engine The Impossibles, will it come up? There is a number of bands called The Impossibles. Oh, really? so what was the song called? About a drum? Yes, it? it was about a drum. Okay, so but if you put drum and The Impossibles, you will see a young Lucy Dallas singing an indie song, which is actually quite good. It's not our song, sadly. That's why it's good. But it is quite good. Anyway, each week we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show today, the NHS remains, as ever, a source of fierce political debate. Junior doctors in the UK have called off a September all-out strike due to concerns over patient safety, but remain at loggerheads over the new contract to be imposed by Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt. Professor Raymond Tallis has written a book called The Mystery of Being Human, God, Freedom and the NHS, and writes for the TLS this week, on that great British institution's gloomy future. He'll be joining us. The medicalisation of pregnancy and birth is one of the themes of a review by B. Wilson this week. She looks at two books that try to recover the natural experience of producing children, which to me, of course, will always require an act of empathy, to say the least. But Lucy and B. will be here to assist me. We also have a rich and startling reappraisal of O.J. Simpson from cultural critic Marjorie Perloff. She has watched the five-part documentary O.J. Made in America and found parallels between this great black fallen hero and Shakespeare's Othello. She'll be joining us from California. Finally, we shall end the show with a poem that appears on the pages of the TLS this week, Pastoral, read by its author, Helen Farish. So first, a timely chance to consider what Raymond Tallis calls the supreme achievement of the post-war welfare state, an extraordinary institution born out of extraordinary circumstances. It is certainly under extraordinary stress at the moment and perhaps in extraordinary peril. Raymond Tallis, who is of course a cultural critic, philosopher and retired doctor, has written a book out this month which seeks, among other things, polemically to tackle the future of the NHS. 
Designed to slay the five giants of poverty, ignorance, squalor, idleness and disease, the NHS was based on the principle that commercialism, what Anur and Bevan called the rapacious bustle of the stock exchange, and healthcare would always be in immediate conflict. Talis has charted the path from these anti-capitalist beginnings to what he regards as a long gestating conservative plot to privatise the NHS. In this week of the junior doctors striking, then not striking, it has never been more timely to discuss what happens next. Raymond joins Lucy and me now. Uh, Raymond, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Let's start with some some history, because your piece does that in, in the TLS this week. What to you are the critical principles of the NHS which should remain in place forever? Well, there are practicalities. Um, what is the most efficient way of delivering health care to a population? And then there are values. And it's lucky that the sort of practical way of delivering health care is also the one that I think most reflects the, the values that hopefully we all share, uh, that we owe each other support when it comes to facing the lottery of life. And it seems to me that an NHS which is publicly funded, free at the point of need, publicly provided, meets both these practical requirements and also corresponds to the values I think the greater part of the British people share. For someone like me who's grown up in the, with the NHS always there, it's easy to take that for granted, isn't it? You refer in the piece to your grandmother uh, dying, sadly, of an untreated kidney disease because she couldn't afford hospital care. And the first thing the visiting doctor said your mum remembered was my fee is five pounds. So there was a time when if you couldn't afford it, you couldn't get treatment. You're absolutely right. And that to me is is the central frustration for those of us who are trying to warn people what's happening. Because uh, essentially people have never known life without an NHS. And it's a bit like the air, really. It's only when you switch the air off that you realise you were breathing it and it's rather a, a vital necessity. So the, the NHS is forged. It's, it's, it's forged in an extraordinary time and it's, it's a pride of Britain. You say it's one of Britain's supreme achievements. It is then, over the course of the years, it, it, it's continually funded. But in your view, what happens next? It's the, it starts with Geoffrey Howe, you think, in, in 1982, where... A plot is hatched, uh, and it may be worth putting it as strongly as that. A plot is hatched to say we don't want this to be purely funded by the public and for the public, but we want a private element to be introduced into it. That's the essential story, really, that I trace in the article and also in the essay in the book, which is, it is a plot. It's something that is sprung upon the populace without them either being aware of it or indeed agreeing to it which is how to sell off the NHS and make it as basically to be something to be provided by um, private multinational healthcare uh, companies, Uh, how you can do that without the public being aware of it. Because poll after poll has shown that there is huge public support for a public provided free of the point of need NHS. I mean, the most recent was something like 80% plus. So it's been quite a challenge for those largely Tory politicians who have wanted, actually, to sell off the NHS. And why, why would they want that, Raymond? Because, you know, I read your piece and you, you don't have any time for Andrew Lansley, you don't have any time for, for Jeremy Hunt for reasons which are, I think, understandable and, and clearly set out. But are, is it your view that these people are either immoral or amoral and, and, and don't care? Or do you think they have the misguided view that privatisation, that introducing the discipline of the private sector is a a good thing. I mean, why would they do this, in your view? 
I think it's very interesting. It's always very, very difficult to understand people who don't share your own values. But I think some genuinely feel that the NHS is an inefficient organization and that people would get a better uh, deal if um, the NHS was privatized. All the evidence worldwide is against it and all the reasons are against uh, uh, the, the very idea that privatization would produce a more efficient service. By the way, not all Tories have been against the NHS. I mean, there have been some very good one, one nation Tories uh, who have been very supportive of the NHS. David Ennals, for example, was, was, was one. But I think that, that there is a feeling among some that without competition, people just coast. That's a phrase, actually, that um, Jeremy Hunt used, that uh, people who work in public services aren't subjected to the disciplines of those who work in the private sector. And uh, there is the feeling also that there is a huge bureaucracy built up around the NHS, uh, largely by self-serving public servants who are not the uh, um, angels they think they are. The kind of values that are implicit in a public service are often protested, but largely are um, not felt by those who protest them. It struck me as very interesting that you said that, that, that there was a, a plot and that you said they had to keep it quiet because um, you said Michael Portillo said if people had known what we were planning, we wouldn't have got elected. Exactly. And, 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 and as you say, the results of those polls. But then in a way, some of it was hiding in plain sight because you talk about the, um, the book by Oliver Letwin... Um, out in 1998, yes. um, privatising the world, and also a book of, of which um, Jeremy Hunt was a co-author, Direct yes. Democracy, in which they put out completely clearly, it seems, um, th- these plans. Um, and how how did that work, do you think, it's, it's since they were sort of, you know, publishing books saying, let's do this, but then yes. um, keeping it quiet, as it were, in practice? Is that how you think it worked? Well, those are the kind of books that are only read by the Anorak few, so they are maybe published, but uh, you know there will be very few people who read them. So the debate about what's going on is really depends on the broadsheets, on the tabloids, and on uh, the BBC and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that has enabled um, what's going on to hide in plain sight. In fact, we actually had a chapter in our book, NHS SOS, was explaining how the media precisely enabled that thing that you find puzzling which is people have got certain declared views. Nonetheless, they're not actually connected with what they're actually up to. Because mm. UKIP, I think, are the only party who has declared a desire for private, part privatisation of the NHS. They're at least, I seem to recall, seeing Nigel Farage sort of parping on about that. He seems to accept that that is a stated policy he's happy to stand and stump upon. Well, it's very interesting with UKIP. When we had local hustings, I organised the local hustings and I produced some leaflets showing the, the views of different parties. With UKIP, we said, please uh, check every two days as to what their policy is. <laughs> because some people in UKIP actually are strong privatisers and some are strong supporters of a publicly funded, publicly provided NHS. And when I challenged one of uh, the local UKIP candidate about this, he said, the great glory of UKIP is people, individuals within the party can have their own views. So I'm not too sure there's coherence even within within UKIP. I, I've got another thought for, for you, Raymond, which is that when the NHS was created, the, the, the survival rates, the longevity of people's lives, the scale of the population was a very different... Yes. Uh, it painted a very different picture. And we're now living in a world where people live longer with therefore more attendant chronic ailments. Yes. So the real 
I suppose, destruction of the NHS is not about policy. It's about population and economics. Just we are we are living too long with too many long lasting ailments. And therefore what worked back in the 50s just won't work in 2020, say, because the population is too large, too sick for too long. And whatever else we try and do, that's just an ineluctable fact of life that the NHS can't provide for. I think I've got several quick responses to that. The first is, yes, people are living longer, but the period of disability, dependency and need before death isn't growing proportionally. So um, today's 70-year-old, like me, is like the 60-year-old 20 years ago. So there's what's called a compression of morbidity. So to some extent, there hasn't been a proportional increase in the demand simply due to the increased older population. It It is a contributor. And certainly it's a reasonable estimate that in view of the increase of the population, as well as the age of the population, and also the availability of new technologies, which people are entitled uh, to uh, regard as appropriate, means that uh, uh, there's an on average a 4% increase in demand on the NHS. But having said that, if you look at the proportion of our GDP we spend on healthcare, it's now fallen below 7% compared with the European average between 9 and 10%. And in comparable countries like Germany, they spend 11 to 12%. So despite the fact that there are increased pressures, that is only a small part of the story. We've actually got a reduction in the proportion of our GDP we're spending on healthcare. Tony Blair, for all his faults, did increase the funding of the NHS to about the European average. And that's why by 2010, when the last Labour administration uh, left office, um, the NHS was its absolutely the best state it's ever been. Patient satisfaction, waiting lists, quality of treatment, infrastructure, and so on. So we really spend far less on our NHS than other comparable countries, and than people would be willing to spend. I mean, an extraordinary survey showed between 50 and 60% would be perfectly happy to have an increase in taxation to support increased funding in the NHS. And it's not often you get people, as they were, embracing the idea of increased taxation. Thank you so much for for rising for the TLS this week and coming on this podcast. The book is uh, out on the 13th of September, The Mystery of Being Human, God, Freedom and the NHS. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. And to you too. And thank you very much. And you, Lucy, as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. I mean, the thing is, it's easily politicised this into the left versus the right. And I'm sure, you know, we don't have a sort of Tory perspective on this. But it does feel that it's slipping away from them. I just wondered why Theresa May didn't get rid of Jeremy Hunt. She had a shot at it. And, and I was talking to some junior doctors at the weekend on this subject. And you'd have thought she could have tried to sort of neutralise the battle for the NHS by getting rid of Jeremy Hunt. But it's clearly not Jeremy Hunt that's the issue. It's a conservative ideology, which is that the, some elements of privatisation aren't a bad thing. Yes, it is. It must be. But uh, it's in a way surprising that even even for the most cynical reasons that she wouldn't get rid of Jeremy Hunt, even to help out relations with the BMA and to get rid of the of, of the face of those incredibly unpopular changes, I thought it was surprising. Um, but maybe it's better to have him in because... Um, because um, try and come up with what, what possible reason are you going to come up with? Because he made the mess, he could clear it up. That's one reason. No, no, because I don't think I don't think remotely that he's going to clear it up. Maybe it's better to have him in because he's. I suppose I was about to say he's not pretending to do what he's doing, but actually he is pretending not to do it. Yeah. If you see what I mean. But also, I think maybe she doesn't think it's a mess. 
Theresa May um, doesn't think this is a mess. Maybe, but if you have junior doctors going on strike for um, more than they have ever gone on strike with overwhelming support, that looks a bit like a mess. To begin my life with the beginning of my life, I record that I was born, so says Dickens' David Copperfield. But as B. Wilson makes clear in her piece this week, that's not strictly true. Life predates birth, biologically, ethically, legally and emotionally. Beers reviewed two books that look respectively at pregnancy, Expecting by Chichra Ramaswamy, and The Benefits of Natural Childbirth, A Bun in the Oven, dreadful title, by Barbara Katz-Rothman. Uh, B joins Lucy and me now. Hi, B. Hi. Um, you begin your review with this notion, which I think must be true, of the sort of very sanitised presentation of childbirth in Hollywood films. Why do you think culturally we look to present birth and indeed pregnancy in these sort of unrealistic ways? I think it's partly because our entire culture is so results-driven, and that's true when it comes to childbirth. And as the first book, Expecting by Chitra Ramaswamy, brings out very well, pregnancy is a strange, mysterious state that nobody actually can improve at. It's not teleological. You just are pregnant. You can't get better at it. And there's something about that that somehow goes against our self-improvement and our desire for results. There are certain cliches in Hollywood film, and childbirth is one of them. In literature, Lucy and I were talking before uh, the podcast about are there any literary examples of accurate reflections on pregnancy or accurate descriptions? Do you refer in the piece to a sort of lovely turn of phrase of Sylvia Plath as yeasty rising. But again, that feels very artful rather than an, an evocative of something actually experienced. I mean, in the Ramaswamy book, I felt she made very good use of literary references. She talks about people ranging from um, Tolstoy um, and Anna Karenina to Jhumpa Lahira. And she also talks about the way in which... I mean, I think pregnancy is there in literature hugely it's one of the best metaphors there is the pregnant pause the pregnant moment but the actual practical physical painful humiliating experience of being pregnant no it probably isn't there so much Ramasomi has a good phrase where she talks about whether there's a kind of conspiracy of silence between you know those of us who have been born which is all of us somehow don't ask our mothers what it was like and they don't tell us what it was like. Um, is it because, as the cliche had it, sort of the pain is so bad of childbirth that you just want to forget it and blot the whole thing out? Or is it just that the, the experience is in some ways almost too mysterious to share? I thought the book also brought out very well the ways in which the experience of pregnancy is somehow there. I mean, you mentioned the sort of legal ramifications, this concept of the quickening, which was supposedly the first moment that a baby had life, but it's actually really the first moment that a mother feels kicks. And that was, still is to some extent, the point at which legally somebody becomes a person. And yet it's very strange. Obviously, the fetus has had existence long before the mother actually feels the kicks. But it's the mother's subjective experience which is determining the existence of the child. And that's a very biological definition. It's not a legal definition because, as you say in the piece as well, it happens at very, it happens at different times for different people. It's a biological definition, but it's also a very strange kind of symbolic definition. I mean, maybe the mother has felt it before and just hasn't noticed it. I mean, it feels yeah. the whole of this phase of life is one of symbols and signs to some extent. There are these omens. There are these strange things called 
Braxton Hicks contractions when your body has a kind of rehearsal for the true moment of labor by feeling pain a few weeks before, which Ramaswamy says is the body rehearsing uterine contractions in the same way an opera singer marks a score without singing it out which I thought was one of the many lovely images that she produces in this book. It's again suggestive to me of why this has not been more taken up by by literature, because as you say, it's 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 an act or it's an experience filled with symbols. It is filled with drama. The notion of, of, of the mother feeling or the baby kicking and, and therefore who is actually in control of the experience is is, is kind of ripe for for narrative treatment and actually in the same issue of, of the, as your piece there's a review of Ian McEwan who's done a novel where the the narrator is a fetus but generally speaking you'd expect modern literatures particularly to be filled with artful and beautiful and sensitive uh, descriptions of pregnancy and it seems to me striking that they're not there. I and mean, I think what's interesting is that there are these hints of it in lots of places if you look hard enough so you began with the quote from David Copperfield about to begin my life with the beginning of my life where I called I was born and Ramaswamy uses that as an example of how we just think birth the beginning nothing came before but then that passage also goes on to describe how David Copperfield was born in the call um, which was a strange thing very rare type of birth which still happens very occasionally and in the time of Dickens the call itself um, which was a whole piece of the amniotic sac was thought to be so rare that they were sold. Um, and in David Copperfield, it says, when he was 10, the call was put up in a raffle down in our part of the country to 50 members at half a crown a head, the winner to spend five shillings. I was present myself, and I remember to have felt quite uncomfortable and confused as part of myself being disposed of in that way. And I suspect if we looked hard enough, I know that um, my other area that I know about is cookbooks. If you look in old cookbooks, you'll often find in among recipes for cakes, suddenly instructions on ways to bring about an easy labour or things that mothers can take in the sixth or seventh month that will reduce pain. Um, <laughs> clearly, this is an experience a great number of people have gone through. Everyone has gone through it as a baby. A great many people have gone through it as a mother. Well, let, let's talk about food, uh, actually. It's a, it's a handy segue, that because the second book, uh, Bun in the Oven, um, seeks to compare the birth and food industries, essentially arguing, it seems to me, that the rise of organic food, that return to the, the genuine experience of eating food, has not been successfully matched by a rise in non-medicalised childbirth, what you might call organic childbirth, I, I suppose. Do you think that parallel works? I think up to a point it does. So the point she's trying to make is that the mainstream food industry is one that makes a lot of people very ill. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Oh, it doesn't work very well, yet it's completely dominant. Then there's been this countercultural food movement of artisanal greens and Alice Waters and organic food and farmers markets. Um, and with birth, there's been the mainstream birth movement of forceps and cesareans and hospitalization and medicalization. And then there's been this alternative birth movement of kind of birthing pools and midwives. But her big question as a midwife herself and an advocate for midwives in the United States, where they're far less dominant than they are in the UK. Her argument is why has the birthing alternative movement been so much less successful than the food movement? She makes some good points and I kind of wish that she'd just written a book about birth rather than this extended analogy with food because she does seem to know a lot about the birthing movement and she raises really good points about you. why is it that we assume that somehow there's been progress in the way that women give birth. And it seems that actually a lot of the things that have been done, particularly in the American healthcare system, result in worse outcomes for the babies, worse outcomes for the mothers, and they cost a lot of money. As you say, it only holds up to a point, doesn't it? Because she's, if she says there's McDonald's on one hand and, you know, a kind of farmer's market on the other. But you can't really compare a caesarean to a McDonald's, can you? Because you're not Nobody's going to die if you don't have a McDonald's, where it does work the other way around. I think sometimes there is a tendency to demonise, you know, the doctors or the surgeons because they want to jump in, but very often they're doing it because there is a medical reason. They're not they're not doing it for fun. As happens with Cheetah Ramaswamy herself. She ended, yeah, her, her pregnancy yeah, exactly. ends in a caesarean. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's just this peculiar thing about birth that it only happens once for each person, whereas with food, we have many, many meals a day. You might be someone that eats some organic rocket in the morning and then you have McDonald's in the evening. With birth, there's just one chance to get it right. How do you manage risk? But each of my ladies happened to be in breach position and each of them then flipped around and they were in the right position by the time they came to be born. Um, but each time there was this kind of panic of if they stay in breach position, we're going to have to intervene. And obviously doctors see terrible things happen, whereas with food, terrible things are happening, but it's not happening from just one meal. It takes many, many McDonald's meals before the disaster begins to hit. And the risk is that women who want to pursue a medicalised approach to childbirth, having pain relief or even having caesareans, they might feel a pressure about it. They might feel that that's somehow doing the the incorrect option, which I suppose isn't particularly healthy to be making a pregnant woman feel that way either. It's odd. I mean, there's something, I think part of why the birth movement hasn't taken off is these are things that you only tend to think about when you're, um, unless you are a midwife or an obstetrician, you only think about it when you're pregnant or when you have a family member or friend who's pregnant. And then you're very happy that the baby has arrived and you want to forget everything about the process of how they got there because actually a real person is more interesting. 
it um it, it reminds me sometimes of the of the kind of kerfuffle around a wedding if someone's getting married the the focus is just is 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 on the the thing itself is either on the wedding or on the birth and actually what's important is the bit after really as long as everything as long as nobody dies then it's the bit after that's the the interesting bit it's a lovely uh, piece and i think it's a really an intriguing issue thank you so much for coming on to talk about it thank you I completely agree with B that, that that actually there's all sorts of making people feel bad about themselves all over the shop. That either you're too medicalised if you want to have pain relief, or you're putting somebody at risk if you want to do it naturally. Or do you know what I mean? And there's and there's a whole. And then when you get to what you're going to feed the baby and all. I mean, there's there's pressure and guilt and judgment in every possible <laughs> arena. To be honest, and that's think, only which the beginning. Which is a shame. Yes, and that's Before. just the beginning. Uh, we couldn't think of particularly good literary examples of descriptions of pregnancy or birth and if anyone out there listening has a favorite book or a book they can think of where someone has actually captured the essence of either pregnancy or birth man or woman anywhere in the literary world do do let us know if i email me i think there's an email address which is editor at the-tls.co.uk the greatest literary representations of pregnancy or birth i'd love to hear them because we we sat and we thought about it and you know jane austen doesn't really mention it no george no. Eliot. we couldn't really think of anything the only one i could think of that was that was anything even remotely lifelike was by nancy mitford and being nancy mitford it's quite flippant and it's really good because there's three of them i think it's in i think it's the pursuit of love and there's three of them pregnant at the whole time and she kind of says briefly they're all just getting enormous and dragging themselves around the house and asking each other what time it is and guessing the time because they're so bored there's nothing you know because they're just waiting you're just kind of in anticipation a flippant treatment of it so beat that really beat that as a literary representation of of either pregnancy or or, or birth because i think the more we've talked about it the more you think that this is a topic that is ripe with symbolism ripe with with sort of narrative interest and you'd expect probably to to read more of it so if you want to uh, let me know editor at the-tls.co.uk In 1994, an all-American hero, a sporting giant, actor and public speaker, was charged with murdering his wife and her friend. He was black but believed he transcended race. He was O.J. Simpson. He was found not guilty. Marjorie Perloff has watched Ezra Edelman's five-part documentary film O.J. Made in America and been rather moved by its beauty. She calls it as poetically structured as the most formal artwork and it has prompted her to write a wonderful and provocative essay about O.J., seeing him above all as a tragic figure. Marjorie joins Lucy and me now. Hi, Marjorie. Hi. Um, The the heart of your piece, really, is that O.J. is like Othello. What what, what took you down that line? Well, when I heard the story originally, I, you know, I lived through it when it originally happened, and I live not far away, and it was, of course, the talk of the town then, but the film takes a very different point of view. But, you know, when I first thought about it, uh, you would think, well, how could he be like a fellow, a great hero, military hero? But we have no military heroes, really, today. In the age of drones and so on, we have no individual military heroes, and probably the closest thing we have to a military hero is a star athlete like O.J. Simpson, whom everyone knows about, and being such a star athlete transcends class and race and everything else, and he was revered. I taught at USC myself, the University of Southern California, and when you first go and get a job there, the first thing that happens is you get taken to Heritage Hall, 
and see the Heisman Trophy given to O.J. Simpson. And he also, quite aside from that, was um, very smart, not just, you know, so stupid athlete, but very smart and very clever at knowing when his football career would be over and that he would have to make money. And he was brilliant at getting into advertising and business and sports casting and so on. And then, with everyone loving him and being adored, comes the love affair and marriage to Nicole Simpson, and um, uh, things go very wrong. And um, I certainly think he did commit the murder. I think most people do. It just seems like a tragic fall to me. It seems almost a classic Aristotelian case of Hamartia. But like Othello, O.J. thought he was perfect. It's a sin of pride. And very much like Othello, who I've always felt is not a case of jealousy, as is textbook kind of thing you read, but is a case of somebody who believes in his own perfection. My parts, my title, and my perfect soul shall manifest me rightly. He is not at all worried about Brabantio being angry about stealing Desdemona because he feels that he is a perfect person in a way. O.J. has to be. He will only work for Hertz because that's the best rental company. He will only work for whichever ball team is the best ball team. He went to USC because that was the best football college. But isn't that admirable? So he's isn't not that to be it, the best? Isn't that, in, in a manner of speaking, the American way? Isn't that admirable that he wants to be the best? I wouldn't say it's quite the American way anymore. I would say that most football players, they're quite happy being very good at that, but they don't want to be good at everything. They don't, and they would be insulted, for instance. One of the first things O.J. was told when he went to work for Chevrolet is you have to improve your accent. You have to get rid of that ghetto accent. And I think there are many people who would say, no, you know, take it or leave it. I mean, that's the way I talk. You know, it's kind of an insult, of course, really, to say that. You have to get rid of your accent. He immediately did it because he was going to do anything that made him be brilliant. Now, you can say that is the Horatio Alger story, but we don't get so many Horatio Alger stories anymore. And it is a sort of dream of being brilliant. And it is then that particular love affair with the white blonde woman. And it's a very good question. And that, I think, does make it tragic in a way. What would have happened if he had never met Nicole? After all, he commits the murder when he's 46. Before that time, he hadn't committed any crime, really. And that's pretty old. Can I just um, ask, Marjorie, I mean, it is, of course, you know, and there are all all sorts of parallels, but in terms of comparing him with Othello, is there a danger of glorifying him? And also with Othello, he's a man of violence, but he's a soldier, so he's a man of violence in in kind of permitted areas, if you like, whereas OJ, as you say in the piece, had violently beaten up, certainly um, Nicole Simpson, hadn't he? Um, yes. and, 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 and that was on record and, and had made threats to her. He didn't just sort of do nothing and then this. There was no, a, a build-up to it. And I don't mean to glorify him. You're absolutely right. In that way, it's not like Othello. But you know what? When I reread Othello, when I was thinking about this, I don't think he's so very admirable either mm. in many ways because he's so sure of himself. And the, that whole speech in Act 5, it is the cause, it is the cause. My soul, well, why? Why must she die? He could have gotten rid of her, he could have left her, but she has to die. It's pretty extreme, isn't it, in that sense. Now, as far as the wife beating goes, of course, I say in in a place, it is a parody tragedy in certain ways. And that is one of the great ironies of the piece, that Marsha Clark and Gil Garcetti, the prosecutors, thought it would be an easy case 
because this was the height in the 90s of concern with domestic violence. It was a big issue. Now, she claims he beat her all the time later on. Whether that's true or not, we don't really know. What do you think more broadly this tells us about race relations? Because it seems to me reading your piece is a kind of sad recognition that separate worlds will always exist between black people and white people. Well, I think things have gotten much better. I think I think in LA we could document how much better things have gotten in 20 years. I think in you know in general in the United States despite the bad incidents, things have gotten better, but not wholly. The neighborhoods that are described are still just about all white. I don't think today that those women in Brentwood who walk around with signs saying butcher of Brentwood and get out of our neighborhood, I don't think that would happen. I think race relations have improved to an extent that people would feel guilty even if they thought, you know, they really wanted him to leave the neighborhood of walking around with those signs and being quite that vociferous. Other things you know very well from all the police cases this last year are still pretty much the same. The relation to the police hasn't totally changed. Do you find yourself being attracted to O.J. in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think that you would do? He had, obviously, a kind of charisma that was amazing. The great scene, one of the great scenes in the film, is when he's doing that Hertz ad, and everybody is just dazzled. You know, they dress him up in the three-piece suit. He jumps over all barricades. By this time, he's speaking very well. It's just a dazzling thing to watch whatever one thinks of advertising, you know, anything else, because he is so talented. He was also quite good in the movies. He plays in all those action movies where he's playing the starving, you know, person lost in a mountaintop or whatever. I mean, great B movies, but he was quite well-spoken, and so were his friends. And I think the relationship to the friends and all that is very touching and very trying. And again, I, it's a film you can discuss forever because there are no answers. Just one example, Ship. Ship is his friend who becomes the police captain who is so thrilled because as a young man he comes to USC and he's visiting and O.J. is the guest of honor for their little high school group. And O.J. says, now, is Ron Ship here? And he raises his hand. He's just a kid. And he said, oh, everybody, you know, this is the brother of, of Mike Ship, who was a great friend of mine, whom I played ball with. Please welcome him. Well, he is, can you imagine how elated this boy is to be singled out that way? And, and he adores O.J. And then when he's a policeman in Brentwood, he goes there on Sundays. But he turns state's evidence. He turns state's evidence because he's convinced he did it. Mm. And then the defense destroys him in a cruel, cruel way by saying, didn't you used to drink a lot, sir? You know, didn't you have an alcohol problem? And didn't you go out with other women? And they managed to destroy him completely. You couldn't have been a friend of OJ's. It's a question in my own mind, should he have turned state's evidence? I mean, it is doing it to somebody who's been terribly good to you. You wouldn't have to be on the other side either. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I mean, how many films can you say that about or stories, you know, where you really aren't sure. It raises every ethical issue. And I suppose if I had to say who the real villains in the piece were, I feel the lawyers were. I've always felt that. Well, I think, Marjorie, you'll get agreement on that. And thank you. Uh, uh, We'll have to leave it there. But uh, and I think that's right. It's very often the the cliche of Shakespearean is used to describe a situation. But as you say, the, the story of OJ, which I hadn't really fully thought about till I read your piece, it really does encompass those issues, the issues of, of race and money and power, but also of personal loyalty of the relationships between men and women. And like you say, the great arching narrative in all of humanity, which is that of the tragic fall, people being raised up and then brought low. And it's all encapsulated in 
in one life, which is still ongoing. And, and the final act, to continue the metaphor, is yet to be written. I'm dying to know if he will confess before he dies. That would be really interesting. One of the really interesting things is that he does practically confess at the beginning, and then once Shapiro gets a hold of him, it's clear he's not going to. Shapiro almost tried to get a plea bargain, then gave up on that, and then they start playing that game. And Barry Sheck, to this day, Barry Sheck is the one who did the DNA, who now runs the Innocence Project. Barry Sheck, to this day, was on Charlie Rose's program recently, insisting that O.J. Simpson was innocent. How extraordinary. What an extraordinary story, Margie. Thank you so much for, for writing it for us. <laughs> thank you. And thank you thank for joining you us much. today. I mean, it's interesting, Margie, because she, she is a cultural critic. She writes about poetry and she watches this film and, and outpours this essay about mm. who he is. You're unwilling, as I am, I think, to, to actually go as far as Margie. I think that she almost has fallen for him a bit <laughs> in this. And, and it makes you wonder whether Nicole Simpson is given a fair enough crack here. Uh, well, yes. I mean, uh, all the attention is and always has been on on him, not on her, no. nor on Ron Goldman. And whether we like them or not, I think is is neither here nor there, yeah. because they were murdered, and nobody has been brought um, to justice. Yeah, I certainly didn't realise how big it was, and that it is still resonating, and that people still have very strongly held opinions about it. They did then and they still do because it was such a huge deal. Because it goes to the heart also of what is America because America uh, absolutely adores its athletes. If you, you need to understand that college mm. football is a massive deal yeah. in the United States. Football and basketball tends to throw up this issue of race because uh, a lot of the, the most prominent athletes are black. A lot of the people who own the teams are white. A lot of the fans who go into the, to the stands are white. So it tends to make a microcosm of the, of the racial tensions within mm. America. And then you have its most prominent athletic son killing a white woman, being backed by white people in his defence. And having a live car chase and having a li- for two hours, uh, which kind of stops, certainly stopped kind of the city, didn't it? And it stopped, it stopped the country. And probably. it stopped the networks. They all, yeah. they, they all put it on. So it kind of, yeah. he is an epitome of America mm. in, in all of its kind of glory originally and all of its tragedy, which is why I think Marjorie's piece is so striking that it makes you think about it in those very grand terms. I think the point is that you can you can obviously look at the story through all sorts of ways. You can look at it you can look at it that way as a tragedy. Look at it as tragedy of one person. You can look at it as a thing about men and women, relations between men and women, or about black and white, or about you know money and no money. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which you can look at it yeah. and possibly come to a different conclusion every time. That is almost all we have time for this week. Thanks to Lucy and to Marjorie Perloff, B. Wilson and Raymond Tallis. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus Maren Meinhardt on the tale of a German prince in Regency, England, on the hunt for a rich wife. Elaine Showalter on Susan Faludi's complex relationship with her transgender father. Tony Falbo on the Chinese one-child policy. Adelheid Vosgul on the mechanistic theory of life. Jonathan Back on why we should not fetishise work. Here, here. Catherine Morris on the private life of a 20th century diarist. Nat Segnit on Jay McInerney's new novel. Francis Wilson on 
the new Ian McEwan book, whose narrator is a fetus. Brendan King on his time as Beryl Bainbridge's amanuensis, DJ Taylor on a forgotten English writer, of course, and Richie Robertson rescuing the reputation of Schlegel. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at the TLS. We will conclude the show with a reading of a poem published in this week's paper by Helen Farish. It is entitled Pastoral and read over the phone from Cumbria by the poet herself. Until next time, goodbye. Pastoral. How does Casterbridge appear from the air on this coppery evening? The mayor having dined, the clock sounding eight, emptying the square. Stone of as many greys as tree bark has browns, or like the fur of a hare, grey and brown mixed. And as the bird arcs higher, it sees how compact is this box of chimneys, roofs, certain windows earmarked to be rubied by the sun, church towers whose flocks of pigeons grow sleepy. Acres of coombe, cornland and down display the orthodox gold and green of the season, but it's the blooms of the town's back gardens which delight the bee who uses them as his stockroom. Like a merchant with the feel of samite lingering on finger and thumb, the satisfied bee sachets through a town as much his birthright as the surrounding needs, so countrified is Casterbridge. But to choose between the bird and the bee, wait for all hallowtide and the southerly storms which leave the air furred like the velvet of a rose, refined and which the dozing bee misses while... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The bird treats the sky like a page it has signed.